and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast in the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. Next month sees the advent of one of the biggest dates in the environmental calendar, when the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, aka CITES, pitches its tent in Panama City. This will be the 19th meeting of the CITES Conference of the Parties, or COP19 for short, and it usually takes place every three years. Now, AIA has a substantial history with the convention, from providing it with the crucial information which led to the 1989 global ban on ivory trade to engaging with its various meetings and bodies over the decades. But what exactly is CITES? I'm Paul Newman, AIA's Senior Press and Communications Officer, and in this episode I'm joined by Justin Gosling, the Senior Project Coordinator for AIA's Securing Criminal Justice Projects in Western Central Africa and a long-time CITES watcher and participant. Today we're going to be talking about the convention, what it does, and perhaps just as importantly, what it doesn't do. Justin, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to it. <laughs> well, let's get stuck in. Um, to set the scene a bit, first of all, would you give us a quick thumbnail history of what CITES actually is and how it came about? Uh, yeah, I can, I can try and do that. Um, so as you say, uh, CITES stands for the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. So you can see why we just call it CITES most of the time. Um, <laughs> it's, it's essentially um, an agreement between governments that they voluntarily uh, adhere to. Um, and it, it, its objective is to try and ensure that the trade in species of um, wild animals and plants doesn't threaten their survival. Um, it's, a, it's an old convention, uh, relatively speaking. It was actually adopted uh, in 1963, came into force in 1975, and it currently involves 184 uh, parties, as they're known, which is countries and other states, but they're, they're called parties in the convention. Um, and essentially, the parties that sign up to the convention um, agree to um, regulate trade to try and ensure that it doesn't affect the, the survival of those species. And then every three years, there's something called the meeting of the conference of the parties. We call it a COP for short. Um, and it lasts for uh, two weeks and is hosted by one of the parties. And during that meeting, various decisions are made about um, potentially uplisting the protection of species, maybe downlisting, but also making sure that the, the convention is, is, continues to be implemented by the parties. So at its heart, would it be fair to say that the convention is, is more about... Um it's more of a trade agreement than it is a conservation agreement. Is, would that be a fair interpretation of it without wanting to get too controversial and, and too, too simplistic? I, I don't know. I don't think that's controversial. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really depends whose perspective you come from. But essentially, I'd say primarily it's a trade agreement. Um, of course, we trade commodities around the world as, as countries for various um, various needs and uses. And the the... Um, use of plants and animals is is used in many things for food, from food to medicine um, to the pet industry so it's a huge huge industry um, and a huge trade and of course if it's not regulated there's a great danger that species will be um, affected and, and may even be driven to extinction unless there's some control so I guess yes it comes from it from a trade perspective um, but of course, has wider-reaching conservation, uh, animal welfare, and uh, of course, uh, impacts upon upon people as well. 
Excellent. So I get the impression from a lot of the comments I read on, on some of our social media platforms that a lot of people don't really have a very clear idea of, of, of what CITES is or does. Uh, for instance, we, we get quite a lot of comments like, why doesn't CITES go after these wildlife kingpins? Or why isn't CITES on the ground protecting endangered animals or kicking indoors? I, I guess the question here is, why doesn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I see those sort of responses and, and concerns as well. Um, I think the first thing is to understand that CITES is not an entity. It's not a group of people sitting in a capital city somewhere making decisions about what can and can't be traded or what constitutes illegal wildlife trade or wildlife trafficking. It's a treaty. It's an agreement between the member countries. And those member countries are tasked with both making the decisions about what uh, what CITES does and then to implement those decisions as well. So CITES does have a secretariat uh, which um, uh, provides enforcement guidance and support. So that can really help the, the parties to, um, to implement the convention from an inf- uh, enforcement point of view. Um, there's also a standing committee in, in CITES as well, which addresses enforcement matters. Um, but CITES itself, I mean, there isn't an entity that can kind of march into countries, conduct its own investigations, um, or, um, or or actually address the, the criminality behind wildlife trade. Um, if, for example, the CITES Secretariat wants to go into a country to explore, um, for example, tiger farms, it has to get permission or an invitation from the party concerned and then be invited in there. So if essentially CITES is only effective as the, 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 the national law enforcement and criminal justice response of every individual party. So it's, it's really a matter of um, collective cumulative decisions, isn't it, rather than um, having, a, say, um, a head of operations who would direct a CITES police force to go and do things. It just doesn't have anything like that. It's, it's more about reaching consensus and voting to decide what they're going to do. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and the, the, the parties, you know, I don't think there's, there's many parties at all that would accept some sort of autonomous body outside of their country making decisions or, and having enforcement powers. It certainly doesn't exist um, in, in any way anywhere in the world. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's down to the effectiveness of each, uh, each country to implement those, uh, those decisions. So if CITES isn't of itself an enforcement body, what does it actually do to protect endangered species of animals and plants in terms of, the, the, you know, obviously, the, the, the parties meet and they, they take their decisions and they have their votes? I mean, how does that turn into um, protection, if you like? So, yeah, I mean, the first thing is the process. I mean, you, you, it, it is a democratic process. So the countries will come in and they'll try to agree positions on various um, species and um, what actions to take uh, to, to protect them. And they can be very specific. Um, and if, for example, they can't make a decision, uh, there is uh, they, these, these things can go to a vote. Uh, where there's actually quite a, a broad margin as to whether or not a, a, a decision is is accepted or not. Um, and I, I use the word decision with a, a small d because there's actually a mechanism called decisions. Uh, but uh, anyway, um, so um, and then if they decide to protect those species, um, then it's then down, it trickles down to the countries to implement uh, the, the CITES um 
action uh, that's been determined and to develop legislation and then conduct enforcement action. So the decisions that are made at uh, the CITES COP then trickle down to tangible enforcement action on the ground by the parties. And uh, there's, there's over a thousand species listed on Appendix 1, which is the most restricted uh, part of CITES, which essentially means pretty much all international trade in those species is prohibited. There's over 37,000 species on Appendix 2, so uh, which, which is, is, is slightly, um, slightly less protection. But nevertheless, that's how you could you could explain that CITES um, protects species by listing them, uh, by restricting what can and can be done in relation to trade and import and export, and then it's down to the parties to then go on and do that. Um, the other thing is that that CITES is one of the few conventions that actually has um, any teeth, um, so it is um, possible for CITES to introduce sanctions upon parties. Um, for example, for failing to adequately report on implementation. Um, and uh, so there can actually be action taken against countries that don't comply with the convention. And, and, and how much, um, if you like, I'll say pressure is maybe not the right word, but how, how much pressure is there on um, countries to actually um, implement CITES decisions when, 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 say, you've got a COP and you know, the various parties vote and they decide zero um, tiger farming, for example. Not that that's actually happened, but if, if they will. Um, obviously, there are several countries that are automatically impacted by that, several in Southeast Asia, um, China, for example. Um, what, what, what actually happens to make them aware of what their responsibilities are? And, and, and is there any kind of um, oversight um, to make sure that's done in, in good time? Yeah, so actually CITES is one of the few uh multinational agreements, certainly the only multinational environmental agreement that has uh, teeth, as in it can take action against parties that don't comply. So um, there are trade suspensions on the table for parties that don't comply. Uh, it can be quite a slow process. Uh, it's a combination of carrot and stick against the parties. Um, I'd say mostly the, the intention is to try and use the, the carrot to try and encourage parties to to comply with the convention, uh, as in to take action and make sure things things are addressed properly, make sure there's reporting requirements uh, are addressed. Um, and there's, there's now a mechanism where parties, uh, particularly developing countries, can apply for assistance to enforce the convention, so funding. Um, but at any one time, there can be several parties under trade suspensions. They might be complete trade suspensions, they might be partial in relation to specific species. So that can motivate the countries to bring in uh, the right legislation or regulatory bodies to address corruption and fraud when there's, say, permitting issues um, involved. Um, and it can really motivate them. Uh, and the thing is that parties don't want that reputation either. They don't want to be restricted in trade. Um, they don't want to be, they don't want to have the reputation. And other parties also look at them and say, oh, we don't want to be in that situation. There can also be pressure from the industry. So if there's an industry in relation to, for example, orchids or pet trade or something like that, they may also see that there's restrictions happening to their industry and they can actually put pressure on, on governments themselves. Okay. So, uh, Justin, you've been involved with CITES for some years now. What's, what's your take on its overall effectiveness? 
Um, I mean, that's a common question uh, that, that comes up. I guess one consideration is that without it, things would be a lot worse. Uh, and when we see criticisms of CITES, um, which are often valid, the question is, what would you replace it with? What, what could take place instead, uh, which would help to restrict trade, uh, to ensure that trade can continue without harming species, to ensure that species are protected? So that, that's the challenge. Um, it, 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 so, so without it, I think we'd be a lot worse off. Um, as I mentioned, there's lots of um, potential for sanctions on parties uh, that don't comply. There's also a whole framework of activities that go on around CITES. So, for example, there's something that came in uh, almost a decade ago now called the International Convention on Combating Wildlife Crime, uh, which is made up of uh, five intergovernmental organizations. And that can help to uh, coordinate responses from, from governments. So, for example, they developed an indicator framework to try to assess how well countries are implementing their response to wildlife and forest crime. And EIA actually had a, an instrumental role in, in, in that. Back in 2006, there were discussions around uh, implementation on resolutions on tigers and other Asian big cats. And um, the US government called for more meaningful reporting by CITES. And then EIA started looking at indicators of effective enforcement, which then um, became uh, adopted and developed by the likes of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime and, and Interpol. So, so um, the CITES itself, which helps to to uh, uh, pre prevent trade from affecting species, but then there's all the sort of um, knock-on actions in relation to enforcement and protection that can happen as well. Super. Now, as we learned a couple of years back when a new report came out, the planet is currently in the midst of a rather alarming biodiversity crisis, and some people have predicted it could actually accelerate into a new great extinction. Do you think CITES as a mechanism is still fit for purpose in these somewhat harrowing times? I, I think there's an argument that, that CITES has outgrown itself, or at least the challenge is growing way beyond what a single convention can do or um, uh, beyond the scope of the current capacity of CITES. Um, one issue is that, that's coming up and has been uh, uh, documented uh, in the in the coming, coming meeting in, in Panama in November is that the CITES Secretariat, which is a body that does a huge amount of coordination, um, has an increasing workload. Um, there's issues with long-term funding, and that's knocking on to them saying that they may not have the capacity to open up, for example, reviews of processes like the National Ivory Action Plan process. Um, they don't have the capacity to go out and conduct independent assessments, for example. So their funding limitations and capacity limitations may have a knock-on to um, the monitoring the actions of, of, of parties and ensuring transparency and accountability. Um, so I think the key thing is, is that the challenges are increasing and that therefore I think demands more of, of um, greater national action uh, by the parties. We need to see things happening faster, um, more robust resolutions under other conventions as well that complement CITES. So the UN Convention Against Transnational Organised Crime is relevant in this since Wildlife trafficking is a form of serious transnational organized crime and also the Convention Against Corruption, bearing in mind the extent of corruption in, in this industry as well. So um, everyone has to continue working with those 
mechanisms, working on national enforcement, ensuring that uh, enforcement is effective and that the criminal justice systems are uh, in place to, to support that. Um, it's, it's getting tougher, but that means everyone's going to have to work much harder and we, we may need to continue to review what's happening under CITES and, and ensure that the capacity is there in the long term. Yeah, I was, I was thinking because we recently had a, um, the 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 um, COP of the um, International Whaling Commission, um, and and one of the things that that was kind of dubbed as when it first started was was basically a sort of a club for whalers. Like the original purpose of the IWC was effectively to make sure whales were available for whalers to go and catch them and and to put limits on the catch and stuff. Over the years, we've seen the IWC uh, evolve into more of a conservation body, or at least with that as a much higher. Um, priority for it. Is that something you think is um, appropriate for CITES? Do you think it, it could be repurposed along those lines to give a, the conservation aspect of what it does uh, a, a much higher place? So CITES is uh, always going to be a convention that has to balance trade with conservation. Uh, it's a huge industry uh, involving uh, plants and animals, uh, but also the demands on them is, is increasing and the demand to conserve uh, biodiversity and the species uh, is, is also there. So I think it's always going to have that um, uh, not so much balance, but two sides to the story, really, two, two conflicting sides that need to find common positions and, and try to make sure that we do the best for, for everything involved. Uh, thank you for that. And finally, looking ahead to COP19 in Panama next month, could you give us a rundown of some of the key issues which our campaigners are interested in? Yes, so CITES uh, has been something that EIA is engaged with for, for decades. Um, it really contributes to our overall aim to research and campaign against environmental crime and abuse. Um, the involvement of non-governmental organizations like EIA uh, as part of the CITES process is absolutely critical to providing information to supporting parties, to increasing transparency. So at CITES meetings, we'll be in the room. We're, we're present as observers. We can make um, statements from the floor, known as interventions. And we can also lobby behind the scenes, speaking to key parties and helping to establish their positions. Um, EIA's involvement at CITES um, has, has secured some of the most important policy decisions uh, uh, outcomes of CITES, such as the 1989 ban on, on commercial ivory trade. Um, so at the Panama meeting uh, in, uh, in November, COP19 as it's known, we've got a lot of objectives so on tigers and other Asian big cats. We're trying to push measures against, for example, Laos for failing to take enforcement action against criminal enterprises that run tiger farms, uh, so-called zoos. We're also putting pressure on China to end the domestic manufacture and trade in leopard bone pills and wine. On pangolins, we're calling for amendments to resolutions and decisions to ensure that domestic markets for pangolins are closed. So, for example, in China, it's still legal to use pangolin scales for medicines. Uh, we also want to ensure that parties destroy stockpiles of pangolin scales so that they can't enter the trade um, through leakage or other means. On African elephants, we're looking for a review of the National Ivory Action Plan process, trying to make sure that that remains fit for purpose. It's, it's 10 years old now, and we want to make sure it's an effective process to ensure that the ivory trade 
uh, is addressed effectively. We'll ensure, also ensure that uh, parties support, but also scrutinize efforts by countries in Western Central Africa to enforce CITES. And we'll be holding a couple of side events, so events in the lunchtimes and in the evenings, one on the National Ivory Action Plan process, and another with Nigeria to look at what they're doing uh, to enforce the convention. Well, I, I wish you and um, the rest of our colleagues all luck when you actually get there. And um, I'm hoping you'll be keeping us abreast of um, developments as they happen and we can pass them along to people via our social media platforms and our website. So, Justin, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please check this space for future episodes and check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us and wherever you are, stay safe out there. <laughs>